just kidding. Listen, I want to start this morning and talk a little bit about the Salt Company Conference. Um, I wish that you could all be in that room, but you can't. And I'm an old creeper in the back that's trying to hide out from the back, letting the next generation have their moment. But it's absolutely profound to watch 4,500 college students. They're not just responding to a song. They have a track record and a desire to spend their lives for the glory of God through starting other salt companies, through starting other churches. It's incredible. Let me pick up where... where um, Pastor Todd started. He was there at the original salt company. Well, all of a sudden, it seemed like God was doing an incredible thing in that place. And in 2017, or actually 2016, the idea came and says, listen, what God has done, let's actually propagate that. We believe that we're, we, we're called to steward it so that could happen at other places. In 2017, Keystone, you were one of eight original churches. The sign has said, listen, let's partner together so that we can see what God has done among our churches, among other places. That was eight churches in 2017. It's now 2023. There are 24 churches, 26 salt companies. And you need to know this, Keystone. You're a big part of that. You were there at the founding. In fact, you have, you've helped us start two of those churches with Michigan State in 2019. And now we had uh, Illinois State in 2022. You're massive in that reality. You've helped train those people. You've helped people move. You've been a part. And listen, you need to know this. Keystone is a pace setter in how we give to the Salt Network. Beyond Cornerstone's investment, we're the second largest contributing church in the network. We give $100,000 a year to make sure that that doesn't stop. And it's because of your generosity that we can do those things. God's doing incredible things. We're actually organizing now so that it doesn't, we, what was 24 churches can be 50 and even more. We're making that in there. I get an opportunity to sit on the board to make that, that happen. It is such a joy. But let's get beyond like what God wants to do overall. Look what he's done through you. It was really profound uh, this week. Uh, this week I've had a really strong connection with Austin and Michigan State. Many of you know there's a shooting at East Lansing. And so immediately I'm on the phone with Austin. I'm still officially an elder at the Commons Church. And so walking with him as he's helping his church walk through tragedy and difficulty. So I've been on the phone with him a lot this week. And all of a sudden we walk into the room on Friday night. I think, there's, I think the number was 250 Michigan State students were in that room. And a holy kind of moment for me to go, the decision that our elders made, we're gonna plant churches. And then watching Austin walk through that process, it's gonna be Michigan State. And now to watch this week in the midst of ministry amongst the tragedy, we know of three students at Michigan State that came to faith this week alone. And then see all of those students, and here's what I also know, many of you have those students in your basement this week. Raise your hand if that's you. Yeah, a lot of you. How awesome is that? Like our basement is full of college girls. Uh, college girls eat a lot of food, guys. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> they, do, they do damage. Uh, but to, to go from this, God, we want to plant a church to housing 10 Michigan State students who have no clue how much this church loves them. It's such a gift. Keep giving. Keep pressing in. Let's keep seeing what God might want to do in the next generation. Amen?
Awesome. Love you guys. Uh, listen, when I was uh, in high school, I was a band nerd. Raise the hand if you were a band nerd with me. Listen, this is a non-judgment place. We're celebrated in this room. I was a band nerd. Mr. Harper was an incredible band instructor. And uh, in marching band, there's a, there's a reality that you rehearse over and over. It's a thing about musicians. You just have to rehearse, right? Musicians just constant rehearsing. And when you're marching, you'd have to march from this point to this point, and it wouldn't be good. And he would say, go back, go back, go back. And after we kind of got full of grumbling, Mr. Harper would always use this phrase, and it drove me crazy. He would say, repetition is our friend. And I'm like, well, I don't like him, <laughs> right? <laughs> repetition is our friend. And the reality is, is that if you wanna get good at some things, sometimes you need to repeat them. There's messages that you need repeated. Often what, needs to, what you hear a lot is what you need to be repeated. In my life growing up, I heard phrases like, sit down, be still, be quiet, a lot, because that message should have been repeated in my life, right? But the reality is that sometimes the message that is repeated is actually the message we need to hear. And this is categorically true where we're at in the book of Hebrews. If you've been with us in the book of Hebrews, we're about message number six on Jesus is a better sacrifice. He is better than Melchizedek. And it's been very repetitive. Somebody say amen if you've been talking about this in Connection Group. But here's the thing. It's important. Repetition is our friend. He's writing this to the Hebrew listeners because they needed to hear it this much. It needed to be repeated. And I want to submit to you this morning that we need to hear it again this morning too. That it's a message that if we're not careful, we forget and we move on from. But this morning, repetition is going to be our friend. I want to read Hebrews chapter 10. You can flip there. It's going to be on the screen. We'd love for you to carry your Bibles as well. It says Hebrews chapter 10. I'm just going to read the first verse, and then I'm going to set this up because it's going to help walk us through the rest of the text. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. If you are a note taker, you need to write this down. This is the main point of the sermon this morning. I'm gonna say it over and over again. Come out of the shadow of the law and into the salvation of Christ. Come out of the shadow of the law and into the salvation of Christ. You guys ever had a class where you literally were learning and taking notes and you said to yourself, I will never use this again in my life. Students, where are you at? Oh, most of you are downtown, but you high school students, y'all know what I'm talking about. Freshman year, college, I'm in philosophy. And I remember thinking to myself, Mr. Dr. Clark, you're crazy. I'll never use this again in my life. And here we are. I'm going to use an illustration I learned in freshman philosophy. Plato. There's a famous thing he taught in the Republic called the allegory of the cave. It's when he's trying to teach about epistemology and philosophy. That's nerdy stuff. We don't care about that this morning. But the story really matters. I want to show a picture of you. Here's the story, the allegory of the cave from Plato. I went back and read it this weekend. It's pretty short. Here's what the story is. The allegory says, hey, you can see on the left, there's prisoners and they're chained to where the only thing they can do is face forward towards the wall. There's nothing else they can do. And the only thing they've ever experienced in their life is what is on the wall. And behind that wall 
are some people, or behind them are some people, there's a fire and people holding up figurines and they're moving them along. And so the, the, what the prisoners are seeing are shadows of these kind of puppet type of things that other people are holding in front of the fire. And the reality with these prisoners is, is that they think because they've never experienced anything else and they're prisoners, they can't move, that what the shadows that they're seeing are reality. That's the only thing that they can believe exists on planet Earth. Eventually, one of the prisoners gets freed, and he walks and he walks behind the fire. He sees the fire, and then he goes outside the cave, and he realizes, oh, my goodness. What was on the wall was a shadow. That wasn't the real thing. Now that I'm outside, I can see that there's other real things. Plato's trying to say the only way we can know things is through the theory of knowledge and philosophy and thinking really well. Here's what it says. And then the prisoner comes back in and tries to explain to the other prisoners, hey, um, those shadows aren't the real thing. The real thing's out here, and he can't convince them. And if you pull that where we're at in the text with Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is looking and he's saying, listen, new Jewish believers, you were looking at the law. It was a shadow. You have now seen the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've seen this reality, but because of the reality of their days, persecution, difficulty, you're really tempted to go back into the cave and think that the shadows are what you should do. And he's trying to do everything he can to say, don't go back in because the shadow is not what's real. Because for them in our text today, the shadow was the law. It was pointing to the real thing that was coming in Jesus Christ. And the message for us this morning is come out of the shadow of the law and into the salvation of Christ. So we're gonna just plow through this text. We're gonna start really looking at what the shadow of the law is, who Christ is, and what the salvation of Christ is, and we're just gonna run through the whole text together. Are you with me so far? Awesome. Here we go. This is verse one. I'm gonna read it again. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of these things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. The law is the shadow. And here's the reality of that shadow that pointed to Christ is that it could not perfect, the scripture says. It could manage the problem of sin. You could say, you got a problem, you got to offer a sacrifice, but it could never fully solve the problem of sin in our life. And because of that, the sacrifices had to be offered over and over, continually offered year after year, day after day. That's what the sacrifices had to do. And so the reality is the law and the sacrifices were a religious treadmill. Day in and day out, the Jewish people could never get off the treadmill. They would make a mistake, sacrifice. Make more mistakes, sacrifice. They could never get off of it because those sacrifices had to be continually offered, which brings us. Next is, is that it was a reminder of sin. Verse two, otherwise they would have stopped being offered. Since the worshipers purified once for all would no longer have any consciousness, but in the sacrifice, there was a reminder of sins year after year. So the idea is that not only was it continual and it could never perfect, the reality is every time you went back to a sacrifice, it reminded you once again that you were a sinner. 
So in your mind, back to, the meta, back to the metaphor of a treadmill, it was a treadmill that you could never get off, and on the dashboard of the treadmill was a speaker yelling at you, you're a failure, you're a sinner, you cannot get off. Every time you have to continue to offer sacrifices, it reminded you of how broken you were. And this is a major piece of the shadow of the law. And this is it, that guilt and shame is the emotional current of the law and sacrifice. Guilt and shame. You messed up. You got to make it right. You blew it. Every time you make a sacrifice, it's a reminder of how much you've blown it. And that's the reality. That's the current emotional current of the law, of the shadow of Christ. Guilt and shame. And you know this if you've been around. The, the writer of Hebrews has no Patience for this. Look at verse four. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's a broken system. It can never perfect. Not only is it a treadmill, it'll never, ever, ever get you in shape. It'll never fix the problem. And for us this morning, that's kind of refreshing. But for the ancient reader here, this would have been a little offensive and disturbing because these people who he's writing to grew up in the sacrificial system. They grew up going to the temple. Their mom and dad taught them how to do that. Their aunts and uncles may have been priests. Like this was their culture. This was what they did. This is the thing that they knew. And so for the writer of Hebrews to look and say, it's worthless. It's only a shadow. It would have been a little bit offensive because it's what they knew. And the writer says, listen, this isn't my opinion Look what God said about it. And he introduces what he always does in Hebrews. And he goes back to the Old Testament and he reads Psalm. He quotes Psalm chapter 40. Say, listen, that the sacrifices are broken is not my ideas. Look what God actually wanted. This is verse, or this is quote, it's verse five, but it's quoting Psalm chapter 40. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, you did not desire sacrifice and offering, but prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. And after he says above, you did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. Here's what he's trying to put in. Listen, he's saying sacrifices were never the goal of that system. They were never the goal. They were the means to get to God. They were never the goal. They were never the, the, the way that we should get to God. It was just the mechanism. And these people have gone back and back to the system saying, this is how we gotta get to God. And he's like, no, God says that he doesn't delight in burnt offers. He actually delights in people. And it's in this moment of showing the brokenness of the shadow of the law that we see the beauty of Christ. Look at verse nine. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. Speaking of Christ, he takes away the first to establish the second. Jesus has done away and replaced the law. The law was only a shadow that kind of gave us an idea of what was there, but it was a shadow that could never perfect. What he's saying here is that Jesus got rid of the treadmill. There was a treadmill that you constantly had to stay on and Jesus came completely. He got rid of it because he established a new covenant. And check out what he did. Verse 10, by this will, we have been sanctified 
through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Such a powerful sentence, a powerful verse. By this, for all those who believe, we have been sanctified. And in other ways, you don't need a treadmill. A grace to us about the original language that was written, the Bible was written in, is Greek. And Greek has some unique features. One of those features, depending on the spelling of the word, you can tell a lot about what that verb is doing. And so for us in this word, the word sanctified comes from the noun hagios, which means holy. So he's saying, you have been made holy. Sanctified is another way to say that. And what's interesting about the way Greek works is that it's very crystal clear what the tense is, what the mood is, and who's doing the action of the verb. This is so important in this passage. We, it reads this way in English, but it's not as clear as it is in Greek. Here's what it is. That word sanctified is a perfect passive participle. You need to know this. I grew up in Oklahoma. I don't think they teach grammar there for the record. Um, <laughs> So I did not know grammar until I studied Greek. And you can ask my wife who, who uh, edited all my papers. That's a fact. So you ain't got to be a nerd. Let me tell you what that means. Perfect means, there's multiple tenses in Greek. Perfect means it's something that happened, was completed, and that action extends forever. It's done. It's perfect. And then this is a passive verb. What's cool about passive is, is that the person who sanctified did not do it for themselves. Someone else did the action so that they could receive it. It's passive. It's done for you and you receive it. What a beautiful picture of what the gospel is. It is a one time forever thing what Christ did in his sacrifice. And not only that, it's something you could never do for yourself as someone someone else had to do for you and you had to receive it, which is categorically different than the shadow of the law because the this law, the shadow of the law and sacrifice was temporary. It wasn't perfect. You had to do it over and over and over every day, every year, every time you had a mistake. And it was also active. You were the one who had to go fix your problem. Not so in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come out of the shadow of the law and into the salvation of Christ. And now he begins to compare these two things. We're gonna keep walking through it. This is verse 11. It says, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time. Do you see the repetition he's trying to pull out to us, which can never take away sins? But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Do you see the different action? The priests are still standing and working because it could never end. And Christ Jesus, once and for all, did his work, finished his work. It was perfect, and he sat down. The priests are working. Jesus is sitting because his work is completed. Life in the shadows is exhausting. It's a treadmill that is screaming you. It's on incline. 
And every day, you got to wake up and get on it and say, I got to fix myself. I got to make up for the mistakes I've made. Life and salvation is at rest. Sitting, resting, knowing the work is done. Verse 13. And he is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. As a tie back, continue, he's been referring to Psalm 110, that's pulling that forward. But it's also the reality, guys, that sometimes we have been saved, we have been made whole, but we will not fully understand that until we're with him, unfortunately, right? But eventually, his, all of his enemies, when this life is over, we will be with him and fully experience that reality. Verse 14, for by one offering, He has perfected forever those who are sanctified. He has made perfect. He has sanctified. Here again, it's perfect, but this time he's the one doing the action. So it's in the active tense. Christ is the one who's doing the action. Christ is the one doing the action. And to even double down on what he's trying to say, he brings the Trinity into the whole thing. Like, let me just show you how all God is working in this moment. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, the Lord says, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds, and I will never, ever again remember their sin and their lawless acts. And here's the beautiful reality. Because with that one perfect sacrifice, we are made holy because of his sacrifice. He can now deposit inside of us God himself in the Trinity to remind us and to steer our hearts and minds as we walk this earth. A beautiful reality of the part of Trinity of our salvation. Because this isn't true in the shadow of the law. In the shadow of law, you're constantly having to remind yourself out of guilt and shame. We're whispering to ourselves, you're an idiot. You blew it. And for those of us who live in the salvation of grace, the spirit of God is pricking our hearts with conviction, reminding us of all truth is what the scripture says the Holy Spirit's job is and moving us so that we can respond to him. Come out of the shadow of the law and into the salvation of Christ. This whole section has been interesting for those of us who have been preaching through it. It's like, how do we apply this reality again this week? Because it's over the last six weeks, it's almost been identical subject matter and we're trying to figure out God in his sovereignty wants it repeated, so may his people figure out how to get this in our soul instead of being annoyed that it's like, okay, we get your point, writer of Hebrews. We know what's going on. Let's talk about how do we apply this in our lives. Let me explain the difference between living in the shadows and living in salvation. When we live in the shadow of the law, we constantly Two things, feel guilty, and next is earn, we try to earn our forgiveness and access to God. When you're living in the shadows, when you're living out of the law and sacrifices, you constantly feel guilty. That's what I said in verse three. Every time you're reminded of your sin, 
And then you're trying to do everything you can to earn access to God. God, I messed up. How do I get this right? It's a treadmill that's constantly screaming at you that you're wrong. But when we live in the salvation of Christ, here's what there is. When we're living in that one sacrifice once and for all, all of a sudden, there's no guilt and shame. You know Romans 8. There is therefore no now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not guilt and shame. We know that we're sons and daughters and that God loves us. And the reality is, is that we have all sinned. You need to know this. Every person in this room has sinned in the last probably five minutes, right? We're not perfect. So just because you've received the sacrifice of Christ does not mean you're perfect. You're gonna sin, but what's reality is, is that once you sin, instead of guilt and shame, the spirit is convicting us saying, that is not what God wants for you. And when under conviction, we have godly sorrow. The scripture says it's godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. And so we're convicted, we turn from our sin and we look to God's and then we can have access to God. We don't have to earn it. We just can be right there and receive his acceptance. We don't have to work. We rest in his work. So how do we apply that? I'm gonna give you one application this week. And this application is gonna require you to do some homework. It's such a simple question. But on your own, you need to wrestle with it. And when you get in your connection group, you all need to wrestle with this question. So how do you apply this? One question. What is your sin cycle? I'm gonna explain it right down. What is your sin cycle? Two options, living in the shadow of the law or in salvation of Christ. Because if your sin cycle is of the shadow of the law, here's what it looks like. You make a mistake. Let's just not call it a mistake. Let's call it what the Bible calls it, sin. You sin. And it's that that sinning, all of a sudden you feel guilt and shame. It just overwhelms you. And then in that guilt and shame cycle, you go, okay, God, I'm gonna make it up. I'm not gonna do that anymore. I'm gonna do this. And you get really excited because you believe that you've gotta make it up to God. You're gonna make it right. You're gonna bridge the gap between you because you know in your guilt and shame you don't deserve anything, God. And so it can even look like really good stuff. God, I'm gonna never miss church again. I'm gonna never miss connection group. God, I'm gonna tell this person, sorry, I'm gonna earn it, earn it, earn it, earn it, earn it, earn it, earn it. If that's you, that's the sin, that's the sin cycle of shame and guilt, the shadow of the law. Let me tell you something. If that's the sin cycle you're in, you're on a treadmill that the life and work of Christ has destroyed. Because the opposite sin cycle is the sin cycle of the salvation of grace. And listen, if you're living in this sin cycle, you're still sinning. No one's perfect. But when you sin, there's a conviction by the Spirit of God that that is not what's of this word, that is not what I have for you. And that conviction does not spur on guilt and shame, it spurs on godly sorrow. God, I'm sorry. 
And that godly sorrow actually turns to repentance and says, I'm not gonna walk in that way anymore, God, because you've called me a son and daughter, not a slave to sin, and so I'm gonna walk in the way you would have me to walk. And not only that, God, I'm not gonna try to earn your favor, I'm gonna rest in the favor that the cross and resurrection has already given me. I can't earn it. It's a once and for all deal, it's perfect. It was given to me by faith because I believe in the Son of God. So what's your sin cycle? You're gonna sin. But I'm submitting to you today, maybe we needed a repetition of this because there's a lot of people in this room who could theologically explain this, but you're stuck in a sin cycle tied to the law, trying to earn back favor with God. I want to end way of trying to explain this in a way that was, feels easy to catch here for me. One of my favorite movies is The Patriot. I don't know if it's my favorite, but I like it every time I watch it. And I don't always love movies, so that's saying something. Um, the Patriot, um, there's a guy named Benjamin Martin, played by Mel Gibson. Benjamin Martin is a family guy trying to settle in the colonies, and he has a warrior's past. He was historically a warrior, and he's trying to get as far away from that as he can. And all of a sudden, through what happened in the Revolutionary War and the destruction of some of his family and his house, he's thrown right back into the battle, even though he doesn't want to. There's this really fun scene for some of you. Like, this isn't a point, but I think it's really fun because I, I pray this prayer from a movie. I don't know if that's right, but I just do sometimes. There's a scene where he's doing something and he has to get something done. And he says, Lord, make me fast and accurate. <laughs> I've prayed that more times than you can imagine when I'm doing work. God, I want to honor you, but I need to be fast and I want to be accurate to your word. That's just for free. Now the point. At the back end of the movie, <laughs> at the back end of the movie, the reality is that some of the trauma that their family has experienced, um, his youngest child, who no longer has a mother, um, won't talk. She can't talk. And Mel Gibson or Benjamin is having to go off and do all the fighting, and he comes back, and it's his little baby girl, and she won't talk. And he's trying to get her to talk. She won't do it. He's heartbroken, but knowing the duty that he has to go to, he turns and begins to walk back to his horse to go to his next thing. And there's this beautiful scene that every time it happens, I cry. Every time I've seen it. He's walking away and the little girl, and I quote her, she says this, Papa, Papa, don't go. I'll say anything. Please, Papa, I'll say anything you want. Tell me what you want me to say and I'll say it. Papa, please don't go. And they run together and embrace, and any person with a soul has tears running down their face. <laughs> this beautiful moment. I wonder if that's a metaphor for some people in this room. Because in that moment, her words are this. Dad, don't go. I'll do anything you say. Please, what do I have to do to earn your affection and your, your love? What do I have to do? I'll say anything. I'll do anything. What do you need me to do? And I'm going to submit to you this morning. There's some in this room. When you blow it, 
You come back in the shadow of the law of sacrifice, and when you come to God, you're like, God, I'll do anything. What do I need to do? I'll make it up. You said, God, uh, and we're all in this guilt and shame reality trying to say, God, what can I do to earn your favor back? And what the gospel of Christ Jesus is saying this morning, you don't have to do anything to earn it. You just have to say, Father, you already have the relationship. He's already paid it. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You just have to receive it. You don't have to work. You can get off the treadmill. You can just rest because the gospel of Jesus is that good. And I'm confident that some of you could walk me through the Bible and show me why that's true. But on Tuesday morning, at 8.30 when your coworker makes you mad, mad or your kid disrespects you and you go into a sin cycle, you're gonna beat yourself up with guilt and shame and try to earn the favor that only the cross of Jesus Christ can give you. Come out of the shadow of the law and into the salvation of Christ. Would you bow with me? Lord, sometimes we're smarter than our own good. We've heard this message now six weeks in a row. But the reality is, is just like the Hebrews, we are so prone to go back to earning our salvation. And that is heresy. We cannot earn it. It's a treadmill we can never get off. Praise be to God that Christ Jesus once and for all established a perfect covenant that we could never achieve on our own. And God, may it be in this room that you would free your children to stop earning your love and trying to perform for your love and we would rest and receive your grace. God, come. You know which ones among us are trying to earn it? Would you stir by the spirit you've given us to walk through that? Would you look at me real quick? Team's gonna come up and lead worship, but listen, some of you've never given your life and truly believed that Jesus could do that. Maybe you've been to church, but you don't know that. And if that's you, I'm gonna be up here at the end of the service. I'd love to introduce to you and help you understand the free gift of salvation that God wants to give you. Let's stand, let's worship together.